0: In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition, it's intuition,
1: which is really... Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair and I'm joined by Amy Donaldson. Hi. Um, On this pod uh, tonight, we're going to do a topic that's uh, dear to my heart, which is the mental health of medical students. Uh, working in the health profession, um, working in hospitals as I do. Um, I come across a lot of doctors and also a lot of doctors in training and uh, often have long chats to them or short chats to them about how they're doing and what's going on. And uh, it's a topic that has become increasingly, uh, the public has become increasingly aware that there's a problem with mental health with doctors. There was a uh, recent news report in April uh, citing the deaths of, I think, three young doctors by suicide, and uh, there's many, many other stories in the media, and also if you actually chat to any doctors about how stressful the experience is becoming a doctor. So we thought we would have a chat about that, and what we're going to do is going to talk a bit about the prevalence, talk a bit about some of the predictors of distress in doctors, and then look at sort of some of the Mechanisms and treatment, or possible treatments, there. It's it's a very very broad topic, so we've tried to kind of give a, a grab bag of the literature. <laughs> Would that be about right? Yeah, I'd say so. To uh, make it kind of interesting but also relevant. So,
0: okay. So the article that I found is called "Potential Predictors of Psychological Distress and Well Being in Medical Students: A Cross-sectional Pilot Study." Uh, It's by Bohr and colleagues in the advances in medical education and practice last year, so 2016. Uh, So they surveyed Australian medical students, uh, 127 of them, and aimed to look at their uh, psychological health and wellbeing. Uh, They looked at physical health, substance use, work and study, social support, exercise and leisure, burnout, And then personality and the personality traits that they examined uh, came from a measure based on health professional resilience, which is not something that I'm hugely familiar with. It was a new one for me. Have you come across?
1: I've come across resilience basically reading this literature. It's not something that I've particularly come across in other psychological stuff. I mean, there's a little bit that I've seen, but um, it seemed to be quite a, popular topic yeah absolutely and and actually just aside, i know that some doctors hate the fact that there's a lot of talk about resilience factors. yeah
0: and i mean when i looked at what the traits were they had some parallels to some of those big five traits that we've spoken about before so emotionally resilient versus emotionally reactive self-controlled versus disorderly and involved versus detached the three three areas uh, so, they got the students to fill out a questionnaire and the results were that uh, the male doctors weren't experiencing any more distress than the general population. Um, they did acknowledge that there were a low number of males in the sample though, so they questioned whether that was actually indicative of what was going on. Mm. They also drew parallels with other researchers that has had trouble getting male doctors and male medical students to participate in this kind of research. So, I think it was about a 70 or 80% female sample.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, in my brain, I've got it that it's 50-50 yeah. males, females in med programs. That that may actually be incorrect, but... It um, seems about... So, a, a 70-30 split would be quite disproportionate.
0: Yeah. Uh, in females, they found that they were significantly more distressed than males and more than... Uh, other students of different disciplines, and the general population. So it sort of indicates there's something, something going on there. Uh, they did regressions to look at what factors predicted uh, general outcomes. So for higher use of university health services, so more physical ill health issues, that was related to lower emotional resilience mm-hmm. in that model.
1: So you would perhaps suggest that's what's somaticization. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, for greater alcohol use and cannabis use, that was related to lower self-control and higher hours of paid work per week.
1: So but they can afford it.
0: Yeah. And perhaps also a more, I'm thinking more about sort of the stress side of things as well. Mm-hmm. But If you're working on top of studying. Yeah. Whether there's a sort of outlet there. I don't know. And then psychological distress was related to low emotional resilience, low self-control and low number of hours spent studying each week, which surprised me and didn't.
1: Well, you'd be stressed about the fact you weren't studying enough, Mm. maybe.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then burnout was related to low involvement. So that was that trait of being involved versus detached. Low emotional resilience, low number of hours spent exercising each week, and low social support. So that sort of parallels the other literature on burnout in terms of creating sort of a general sense of well being, looking after yourself, looking after your relationships, that sort of thing.
1: Mm, So, yeah. And you kind of burnt out a bit. Although the concept of burnout, I think, is an interesting one. An interesting one. I read a a review or a comment in one of the journals, which I. Which are always really fascinating to read, and it was kind of critiquing this idea of burnout, hmm. um, and and so I'm much more interested in, you know, actual measures of distress because yep. I think that that's actually much more of a robust concept. Yeah. So how did they? Absolutely. Do you know how they measured distress in that article?
0: Uh, so they used the K ten. And the DAS. Okay. Yeah. So the DAS is the Depression Anxiety Stress Scale,
1: which is free online if you actually want to have a look at it. Yep. You Just type in the DAS, or. Um, and it's very popular. It's by the widely. Black Dog Institute, I think. It it's used extremely widely, mainly because it's free. But it's a, yeah. it's a good questionnaire. And the K10, if you've ever gone to the GP and got yep. a mental health referral, they'll get you to do a K10. Yeah.
0: So sort it's, of a yeah. ten-item indication of distress. Yeah,
1: it's it's reasonable.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so that was what they used for for that. It sort of fit with what I was thinking in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, all of the things that they found kind of fit with other research about sort of um, having a balanced life and taking care of yourself and the impact of stress on your well-being, yeah. that sort of thing.
1: I mean, I would say it's a highly surprising set of results because, you know, if you're not spending much time studying and you're training to be a doctor, that would stress you out. Um, like you're sort of saying, you know, if you haven't got much, you, if you've got a lower sense of self-control, maybe you would indulge in substances a bit more. Yeah. Um, I mean, you would wonder whether there's chicken and egg there, but. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, what's striking about that research is it's kind of a bit, a what we would call atheoretical. Yeah. As psychologists, we love a model and models are actually much better to do this kind of research with. Yeah. So actually having a theory of the case of why X and Y equals z or something like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it was quite exploratory because it wasn't something that had been sort of looked into a huge amount before, not in this population. So yeah. So that's a little snapshot of of things that can contribute to psychological distress for doctors.
1: That's right. I mean, I I, I would think as a model, uh, the the model I always, the basicest model, the (laughs) the most basic model. That I would work with is like stress times yes. vulnerability equals yeah. equals distress. Yep. So, basi- a bucket. yeah, like basically, like you know, so like if you've got a personal vulnerability, like you, you know, anxious tendency or perfectionist or something, and then you add a whole lot of stress to that, yeah, um, or you know, vulnerability could also include like genetics, genetics, or like even just your personal situation for yep. whatever reason, and then you add a whole lot of stress to it, then you're going to end up being stressed. Like yep. it's very simple kind of stuff. And and so that's often the way that I start to pick apart a case, clinical case.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: Yeah. yeah. You can kind of go, oh, okay, well, what's going on? You know, what, what do we know about this person personality-wise? What, what do we know about them? What, what's their situation like?
0: It allows for a lot of flexibility in terms of sort of um, piecing together different factors that might have contributed to where, where they're at.
1: Yeah, and then then what psychologists do is that we develop this a formulation, which is a theory of the case to explain why is it that this person a is, you know, anxious or having panic attacks or depressed or or whatever, right? Or yeah. Avoiding going to class or something like that. Yeah. So, exactly. Uh, so the paper I was going to talk about is called Graduate Entry Medical Students Older and Wiser but Not Less Distressed. So this is also an Australian study. It's by Dion Casey and colleagues. It was published in Australasian Psychiatry in 2016. This is an interesting paper because it kind of runs through a little bit of the prevalence stuff uh, just generally, and then which I might read out because I think it's kind of interesting to put, actually put figures on stuff. And then it also then looks at actually graduate students who there's increasingly medical degrees for people who've done other degrees yeah, and stuff like that. And these degrees are shorter duration and then the, the students are older by definition and have more life and study competence. And so there's this assumption that these people would be more able or better able to cope with the demands of studying medicine. Yeah. But no one's actually ever tested that. Okay. So that's what they decided to do in this study. In their preamble they talk about you know there's a concern about the mental health medical students and doctors in training and healthcare professionals. This was a 2016 paper and they talked about there was three deaths of psychiatry registrars and one intern in 2015. Mm-hmm. So you know that's a pretty pretty big deal really. The prevalence of distress can range between 12 to 29% in depression and 34 to 43% for anxiety in undergraduate medical students. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like, what, one in three? Yeah. Yeah, one, one in four, one in three, Yeah, which is, which is a lot. It is. So I absolutely love the way that this medical paper described why this was a problem. They it said it's important to medical educators because it can affect clinical decision-making, negatively impact on patient care, and erode professionalism. Didn't really talk about the fact that. What m- about the doctors? Maybe the, the medical doctors students not so happy, or like could maybe end up hurting themselves. Uh, so Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting way of phrasing the problem, but yeah, I mean, perhaps I
0: mean, indicative of the kind of culture.
1: Well, or indicative of the fact that they have to make the case that doctors, doctors' being is important for training programs to actually consider. Yeah. Because I think there's a bit of a toughen up toughen up buttercup kind of approach. If you can't
0: handle it, maybe you shouldn't be a doctor, that sort of... That's right. Yeah.
1: That's right. So, the subjects... So, this was conducted through the University of Wollongong Graduate School of Med. There's a four-year degree and they got a sample of first, second and third years. They didn't get fourth years because they were all on remote placements and it was a bit too difficult. So, they got a measure of... They they used the DAS-21 again and plus some measures of sources of stress. About 50-50 males, females... Age-wise, 75% were under 30 and 25% were 30 or higher. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not quite as old as I thought it was going to be. So they got uh, 122 students. And on the DAS, they found that the students were just more likely to be stre- distressed than the general population in terms of anxiety. So it was 45% were distressed versus, say, what you'd expect about 13%. Stress-wise, 22% versus 13%. But not depression, which was 17 versus 30, 13%. Okay. So, so anxiety and stress, not so much depression, which I thought was interesting. No gender differences, unlike mm-hmm. the study you were talking about. What they found was that actually older students were more anxious. So over 30s were more anxious than the 21 to 24 group. And older students were more stressed than either the 21 to 24 or the 25 to 29 group. So, which is interesting, particularly because, and no differences on depression. It's interesting because as you get older, the rates of distress decrease. It's a general pattern. Yeah. So, but actually, it's different.
0: So, how did they explain that?
1: They explained it, but they, they seemed to think that maybe the older students had more on, essentially, I think, like more demands.
0: So, other life commitments that then meant that they weren't entirely consumed by their medical training
1: yeah although they weren't able to be entirely consumed by their medical training i think yeah they said that year of medicine there was no differences in depression anxiety but stress was higher in first years Mm -hmm. sources of stress the students suggested that learning the main ones were learning a large amount of material unsure about what to study in what detail and less time for family and friends So that kind of makes it's all fairly logical so yeah, the assumption that age and experience result in better coping is just not supported given the differences, the disparity, the, and that again, they comment about this, the age thing that older students are more anxious and stressed in the opposite pattern, general population. They suggested that the self-directed nature of problem-based learning could cause heightened anxiety because students are unsure as to what, what to learn or into what detail, Yeah, which, which that really kind of speaks to me. It's much easier when you know where you are at and how what the level is.
0: Yeah, when you've got a set structure.
1: Yeah, if you've got a set structure, then you know how much you need to learn. And medicine, I imagine, is just one of those things that there's just so much detail that you could learn. Mm. I mean, psychology is it's it's more about theories. Yeah, I'd say, Mm. and and sort of this skill of assessment, the skill of rapport, and this, and then doing therapy skills are quite quite a different set of skills with yeah. the doctors they have to memorize so much stuff yeah
0: they have to memorize far more concrete actually no hmm. I was thinking that I wonder whether it's that in for medical doctors they need to remember the information but also have it easily to hand when they're in front of a patient it's sort of the speed of the interaction and the speed of which they have to make those kind of calls means that it has to be closer to the front of their mind whereas Mm. in psychology you sort of need to know you need to have a broad bit of knowledge about everything and you need to know what to look for but then often you have a little bit more time with your clients where say in between sessions you can check something out or develop things a bit further
1: yeah i mean usually you would see people on a weekly or fortnightly basis Mm. and the way i think i was trained was to know Mm. enough to get through a consult yeah. Um. To not do any harm, and to ask enough questions to, if you're really really stuck, to run to your supervisor and go, "This is what's happened. <laughs> yeah. What the what the f do I do? Yeah. So yeah. I mean, and and then I think the advent of smartphone technology extremely useful in the clinical setting because yeah. you can you can just pull out on your phone the DSM and actually just check stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And and patients are actually incredibly. Incredibly okay with that yeah like i would have thought oh god no don't do that but or even just you say to a patient if depending on in the hospital we have computers everywhere so you can just look up something go okay i need a mania checklist right now yeah let's do that
0: which is one which is a benefit of working in that sort of situation where you've got stuff easy to hand
1: yeah which many clinical settings do not No, you might have a box of tissues two chairs
0: yeah a window if yeah i haven't had that experience much <laughs>
1: <laughs> with that two chairs
0: <laughs> yeah even that <laughs> there's a lot of um in child stuff there's a lot of doing therapy while playing soccer and so it doesn't lend itself to checking books
1: oh yeah well i mean for a while i worked as a psychologist on the wards at mm-hmm. a hospital and actually in actually in both my jobs and which is very very interesting work because they're the doctors say, Oh, can you see pa- patient in bed 27? The nurses notice that they were crying. And <laughs> that's the referral. And right. you, they've got some medical problem that you've never ever heard of. Yeah. And you go and ask the nurse and they'll they'll give you a three you go house uh, a patient and they'll give you a three minute list of medical statistics about the, their their O two stats and their heart rate and a few things. <laughs> and how are they feeling? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <I don't know. laughs>
1: Mm. but yeah and so you end up doing therapy you can often on the fly on the fly you can be trying to take a history in a room where there might be one or two other people and you've got like a a very flimsy curtain yeah Um, it's very very interesting Mm. skill wise to be able to develop rapport get an assessment be able to then go and tell the medical team what you think
0: quickly and quietly yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, and not in an hour too, like maybe yeah. half an hour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I once did an assessment of uh, a, a lady who is Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. So I had a Vietnamese interpreter. Yeah. There was one or two family members present. Mm-hmm. And then during the assessment, two nurses came in and changed the bed.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that
1: was, that was, um, it was interesting. It, whereas I was, what I was trained was therapist. Client,
0: yeah, that's it. That's
1: in a nice, quiet room. Yeah, Nope I think I got them to turn the TV off, so I, th- I had, oh, well a, I had a win
0: there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so <laughs> back to the back to the study, they talked about you know maybe clearer learning objectives could help. I think every student would suggest that that's the case. It's hardly surprising. They said that the sources of stress changed over the course of the, of, of medicine. So first years were concerned about assessments. The more advanced students were ass- stressed about presenting to doctors and performing clinical procedures. I mean, it's hardly surprising results, really. Mm -hmm. And so they were sort of saying, we need to tailor support to the stages of someone's training, possible selection bias, how representative this sample is of of students in Australia generally, you know, uncertain. But I think it's quite an interesting study and they did sort of suggest that maybe if they'd looked at other background factors, like whether the past degree was a science degree or a non-science degree... What their family situation was like, those factors could have definitely influenced or potential for influencing. So, which is back yeah. onto that sort of stress and vulnerability framework I was talking about
2: before. Yeah.
0: So, hmm. Interesting. Yes, there you go. Hmm. Right. So, I also found an article called How Do Medical Students Regulate Their Emotions uh, by Dula and colleagues in BMC Medical Education in 2016. It caught my eye a little bit because of the uh, title, the how is in parentheses. So there's a question of whether they do regulate their emotions or not. Uh, So the background to this article came from looking at the domains of emotion regulation. So there's a theory by Gross that there are five different areas of emotional regulation. uh, Situation selection, so you can choose to leave a situation if it's emotionally disturbing situation modification so you can change your actions and then therefore change the situation attention deployment so you can distract yourself suppress what you're feeling that sort of thing cognitive change you can sort of restructure it a bit and and change the meaning of the situation cognitively and response modulation so you can do things to to manage how you're feeling and so they also spoke about that successful emotion regulation by healthcare workers has been found to be related to their performance, their well-being, their time spent listening to patients, reduced burnout, increased empathy and increased pleasurable emotions. All makes sense, yeah. So
1: if you can if you can do that, you're probably going to be doing better.
0: Exactly. So they were curious about how this functions in medical students. They were worried that if they interviewed medical students themselves or had other non-students interviewing them, that sort of sense of stigma may get in the way of their interviews. So, they trained a cohort of medical students to interview other medical students mm-hmm. at the university. So, these students were already enrolled in a class that was about improved communication mm-hmm. and uh, they were given the opportunity to do this. So, each of them did a couple of interviews each with classmates that weren't taking that class. So 104 interviews with medical students were conducted. Is this an
1: Australian study? uh,
0: No, it's European. Yeah. And 54 of these included emotional regulation strategies, so then they were included in the analysis. And the interviewers asked about a memorable incident that occurred during the students' training and then about their reactions after the incident and the reactions of those around them and then asked them to reflect on the thoughts and emotions that were associated with that memorable event. The results were that the memorable events fell into three categories. One was what they described as first contacts, so the first time they'd come across a patient who was suffering or had a terminal illness or was dying, those kind of events. Mm. There were also interactions, so between doctors, patients and students, varying combinations of people, Mm. And then clinical incidents, so, you know, coming across a rare case or something unusual happening in Mm, the hospital.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it was interesting as you described that. I was thinking, I wonder how how significant like a single event would be, but then actually I was recalling as you were talking that, like, you know, a couple of cases that I came across and then thinking about, yeah, actually, and then I did employ particular strategies to do my job.
0: Yeah. so yeah so they're asking about those kind of things that stick with you and certainly as I was reading it I could think of times when I'd met people in my work who really sort of stuck out in terms of that sort of clinical incident of, of something people experiencing things that I hadn't come across before and also interactions between different health staff and clients and things like that so they found that the memorable events were associated with negative emotions in around 87% of cases, mm-hmm. and they spanned a few different emotions. They reported shock, bewilderment, and surprise, and this was usually related to a new clinical case or doctors, so senior staff's treatment of patients, so being shocked that they were treating patients in a rude way. There was embarrassment, shame, and discomfort, And that fell into two experiences of being humiliated by doctors in front of patients or colleagues or breaches of patient dignity uh, by doctors. There was also sadness or pity, which mainly came from contact with patients who weren't faring so well or observed patient-doctor interactions. Mm. Uh, Stress was related to the general environment of the hospital, just that they felt like they had to get things done quickly. Mm.
1: And they do. Yep. They really just do. Absolutely. And, and frequently, I, I think some of the way that they doctors are trained is really actually just to, they make them so busy that they often end up just going, I can't be stressed about this, I've, I've got too much work to do.
0: Which is interesting you say that. That <laughs> comes up. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then the last emotional category was anger, uh, which usually came from observed interactions between doctors and patients that compromise the patient's dignity.
1: Mm. Yeah. So, it just I mean, just to stop you, like the... What's interesting, you said about the humiliation yeah. element. Like, I've, I've witnessed at least on one or two occasions, and also had feedback from many, many people about that kind of humiliation and bullying. Yeah. You know, and just kind of quite striking, really. Yeah. Just kind of, I'd love to, you'd love to, to kind of do an attachment study on <laughs> consultants yeah. and, and then look at how they then interact with their students. Because yeah. it's kind of like a parent parent child
0: absolutely dynamic dynamic and it interests me that 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 occurs publicly as well as privately and like I've certainly seen that with family members in hospital and things like that so as a as a visitor seeing that and it's quite confronting when you're there for a, a family member's health issue and you've got someone being sort of belittled at the end of your bed who's supposed to be there to help it changes your interaction with Medical staff as well, so it's interesting.
1: Yeah, it's, I'm not sure how how closely related it is, but medical medical system is very hierarchical. Mm. So you can have a consultant going to see a patient, and they can have a, some underlings with them who who will be well,
0: sometimes mm. twenty underlings. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, sometimes well that's it. But like yeah. you know, I, I was in a situation where a consultant came in, and then the younger doctor who the family had been dealing with was there. And then like four other people and it's a particularly difficult time and <laughs> it's like, who are these other people? Yeah. Like, you know, and and they're just there and they're just quiet and they look uncomfortable, you know, the patient's family
0: is uncomfortable. Is
1: uncomfortable. I've seen it as a clinician where you're kind of like you're you'll be taking history on a busy hospital ward and the the, the consultant swans in and, and and then there'll be these people sort of, you know, Writing notes for the consultant and kind of just observing and and yeah, it's not a situation that that will necessarily lend you itself to self esteem. Yeah.
0: So. Exactly, it's quite an intimidating, intimidating situation. Yeah,
1: for the doctors and then you know, for the patients. we're not even talking about the patients
0: yet. So. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so to deal with these emotions, they described a range of different strategies. In terms of situation modification, so changing the situation, most of the students reported inaction. So feeling sort of stuck, like there was nothing they could do to change the situation. When they did do something, most of them comforted the patient and a small proportion challenged the doctor or questioned what it was that they were doing. So it kind of speaks to that hierarchical nature of it that they sort of described feeling pretty stuck and like they just had to watch what was happening.
1: I listened to that and think fight, flight and freeze. Yeah, absolutely. And the freeze kind of mode.
0: Yeah, yeah. kicking in. Uh, they also used attention deployment. So they just focused on the tasks to avoid emotions. So what you're talking about, that's sort of like, just have to focus on what's what needs to be done and forget about how I'm feeling. This is the work that needs to be done right now. Mm. Uh, in terms of cognitive change... Uh, what came through in their narratives was a denial of the doctor's unprofessional behaviour, saying things like, well, they're a great doctor. This was just a once-off, those kind of comments. And also a reappraisal in terms of amplifying other competencies of the doctor in that situation or justifying it. So, you know, they were overworked, uh, they were tired, things like that. Mm. And then in terms of managing their emotions internally there was also a high degree of suppression of emotion so just dealing with it by squashing the emotions Yeah, they didn't feel it was
1: jack donaghy would say crushing it in your mind vice yeah
0: exactly and then they did discuss things with peers as well yeah yeah
1: what's i mean just on the discussing it with peers thing what's interesting working in a hospital is that you know, I will be the only psychologist on the team or around. Mm. And you develop up collegial relationships. And, you know, my philosophy is if a doctor doesn't trust you to talk about what's going on for them, then they'll yeah. never refer a patient to you. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of thing. And uh, And so within that, you can then end up kind of having, you know, coming across, you know, people really really struggling yeah and and yeah you have to sort of maintain some good professional boundaries to make sure
0: that and the same thing happens in schools actually yeah if you're the only um only psychologist there then you end up with the teachers showing up wanting to talk about the difficulties they're having with Mm. the children in the same kind of same kind of way yeah right yeah i think you end up being the a reliable person who Mm who isn't seen as, as involved in the team or as somehow separate. Yeah. You
1: you certainly do play this role, this someone who's outside. Yeah. Outside the team. But they're in as part of the team. Yeah. But you're outside. It's yeah, quite it's, it's a weird it's a very, very odd dynamic. I always think of the is it Sig Doctor Friedman, Friedman in MASH, who was yeah. a psychiatrist. Yeah. And he's kind of he's part of it. Yeah, but he's but not, he's not part of it. Yeah. And he and he does what he wants. Yeah. So
0: Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> The last bit of the results were that after um, events had happened, uh, that they identified that suppression was late, was related to later ruminative thinking, regrets, avoidance, and a need to dissociate from feelings to be able to do the job. So it had sort of negative, negative outcomes down the track. Yeah, so
1: you push it down and pops back up.
0: Yeah, exactly. You can't just get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. So all of those kind of... With the kind of strategies that I was expecting, especially from the article title, <laughs> um, and I think what also the other thing that came through really strongly was what you were talking about was that the students felt that they needed to suppress their emotions to be able to do their job. That, yeah, there was a real necessity there for that. It wasn't it wasn't an option to express how they were feeling, and the researchers highlighted that that while that might work in the short term long-term, that's detrimental, mm. uh, both to their work mm. and to themselves. Mm. Uh, and they briefly spoke about an intervention that was has been piloted with police who experienced similar, mm. similar environments and um, recommended a trial of that with medical students to sort of improve their emotion regulation strategies.
1: Mm. Yeah. It, it makes sense, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the last bit was that they highlighted that this is sort of the norm in medical education, that there's a culture of not expressing or acknowledging emotions, so you just get on with the job.
1: Well, I mean, I think you kind of have to in in some situations, in a lot of situations there. I mean, yeah. you are doing things that are unusual for people to do yeah. and carry on doing it.
0: And perhaps it's about managing it in at the, mo- the moment, but then later on having some ways of processing through that rather than...
1: Yeah, and so, I mean so, yeah. I mean, so psychologists, we do what's called clinical supervision. Yeah. So where you go and discuss your clinical cases, but through that, you you do talk a lot about, you know, well, how you felt doing, doing that. Yeah. And because, you know, the way in which you feel about a client is, in a case is often quite, can actually be quite important to diagnosing, assessing, mm-hmm. but also can you heavily influence the way you're treating someone. Yeah. And so, as a psychologist, you have to be mindful of that. But so through that process, you kind of debrief. Yeah. Whereas...
0: uh, Doctors
1: don't. It's not a thing. I mean, I had a Mm. very senior doctor tell me, he said, he's like, I've never had any, you know, supervision. Mm. I can't remember the term he used, but that's really what he meant. Yeah. And, you know, it was quite interesting to think, well, you know, that would be, it'd be great to have that stuff. And I think there are some studies around peer peer Hmm. supervision stuff, group supervision stuff, but that's a big difference between psychology and medicine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of more acknowledged in psychology that your own state and your own responses has an impact on the client and you sort of need to manage that and reflect on that and yeah, make sure that things are going okay.
1: Well, I mean, often some of the like biggest breakthroughs Breakthroughs I've had with a patient is when I've realised I felt a particular kind of way, yeah. and then I th- and then I had a long think about why why was it that I think why is it that I have that feeling towards that patient, and then thought okay I'm going to act differently in the next session, see what happens, and then you get like a breakthrough. Yeah, so sort of that
0: thing of you being a tool in the therapy. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's a <laughs> that's a full podcast yeah. to talk about. Perhaps we should do that,
0: totally. but. But that probably leads nicely into the last article, which I think you had one on treatment,
1: yeah, so one of the kind of critiques I have about this this literature is like this lack of this a theoretical kind of situation where the research is done without much kind of awareness of psychological theory i mean medical students or doctors, medical doctors looking at psych stuff they're probably uh, it's not we should their we focus. should go we should go easy on that, yeah. but I did find an article and that's called. Cognitive behavioural therapy for maladaptive perfectionism in medical students: a preliminary investigation, and that's by uh, Suma Chand, and it's in Academic Psychiatry. I was quite excited because I did an essay in third year psych about perfectionism, I got a really good mark for it. So,
0: no perfectionistic traits <laughs> across the table here. <laughs>
1: You can talk Um, So they talk about maladaptive perfectionism Which is this over-dependence on self-evaluation In the determined pursuit of uh, personally demanding and self-imposed standards Despite adverse consequences and so they've found that this plays a role in anxiety disorders, depression, eating disorders, and it's this transdiagnostic construct across disorders. So it's not specific to one disorder, and it's just known as a risk factor for, for psychopathology. And that they have found that perfectionism is associated with psychopathology and distress in med students. So they talk about socially prescribed perfectionism, so the belief that others have excessively high standards for oneself and Acceptance by others is conditional on meeting these standards, mm-hmm. like say a ward round. Yeah, right. So, socially prescribed perfectionism and distress seems to be linked. There's a longitudinal study that showed an association with depression, hopelessness, neuroticism in med students. Academic burnout is also associated with this perfectionism, and it negatively impacts academic self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is like how confident you feel at doing something. Mm-hmm. Socially prescribed perfectionism and academic self-efficacy then influences burnout. So I thought that if you intervene early on with maladaptive perfectionism, Mm -hmm. that it would be helpful. Yeah. So they've got a a treatment regime, cognitive behavioral therapy regime for maladaptive perfectionism, and it's based on the cognitive model of it. So what I thought I would just do is run through a cognitive model Mm -hmm. of it. I thought it was really, really interesting. So... Extreme standards which form the basis of self-worth are usually uh, seen or felt as rigid rules mm-hmm. that, so that someone has. And these extreme standards are maintained by behaviors like working long, long and hard hours, uh, repeated checking, redoing things, being over thorough, procrastination, which so is the flip side the flip of side, it, yep. and frequent self-assessment, Right you're ticking any of those off and you listen to these things you, you may be perfectionistic <laughs> thinking that can be colored by what we would call dichotomous thinking or a better way to think about that is like black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking yeah. so it's like everything i do is great I, i've completely effed something up yeah but there's no in between right and selective attention to failure so oh, i spent four hours cleaning the house but i didn't get that last corner clean so the house is not clean yeah that kind of thing Uh, So uh, you know, or I spelt my spelt this wrong in the reference section of my perfect essay. Mm -hmm. So perfectionism is kept going by raising standards. If you achieve the particular standard, so it's
0: never good enough.
1: Yeah, that's it. It's like, well, I got that, but you know, the next bit's this, Mm -hmm. right? Or avoiding meeting standards. So I guess that would be the procrastination and continual continuous self criticism. Yeah. Right. Previous studies have found CBT focus on this reduce. Both maladaptive perfectionism and psychological stress, but they'd not looked at this in medical students. So the study itself, it's only n equals four, so they only got four uh, participants. Okay. So it's sort of it's very, very preliminary. They got they'd screened first year med students for maladaptive perfectionism, mm-hmm. and then approached those who. Had scored highly on that. Okay. What they did is they approached students who scored highly on maladaptive perfectionism when they screened them at a health and wellness evaluation. Then they approached those who had scored highly. Mm-hmm. They gave them a couple of scales the almost perfect scale, which is maladaptive uh, perfectionism, the imposter scale, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. measures imposter fear, perfectionism subscale of dysfunctional attitude scale, the Spielberger state trait anxiety inventory, and the Centre for Epidemiological Studies, Depression Scale. Okay. So, measure of anxiety and measure of depression. So, they gave everyone a self-help book. They gave them four group sessions of psychoeducation around okay. the model of perfectionism, maladaptive um, perfectionism, and four individual sessions afterwards to work on specific stuff. In those individual sessions, they, ha- they applied cognitive restructuring. So, that would be, I guess you would be reframing maladaptive thoughts so things making things not all or nothing or kind of teaching people to not like to help them recognize when they're selectively attending to failure Mm -hmm. and breaking some of those patterns yeah looking at stress management so getting people to not overwork break some of those behavioral things i talked about before and trying to just basically just trying to get rid of the maladaptive bits because you really want to keep some of the perfectionism stuff yeah if you've ever, as a psychologist, tried to treat someone who's perfectionist really hard because the payoff of perfectionism is great Yeah. because they do stuff that's perfect. Yeah. They they will... They achieve things. They will achieve things. Mm. Frequently, like if you're somebody who procrastinates a lot, good chance that you have perfectionism mm. because you...
0: Think that nothing you're going to do is any good anyway
1: yep, or it's not it. going
0: to be good enough. That's it. And so... You put off that feeling.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a really common thing in postgraduate students. Yeah. And so and, and that's why they, they kind of get to a point where they are finally challenged intellectually and then they become really anxious because they're going to fail. Yeah. Um, and they've never dealt with that before. Mm. So, it's quite interesting. And then they gave the students a homework after each session to generalize these things to other areas. So, okay. And if they're perfectionistic students, they probably did the homework
0: amazing when that happens.
1: <laughs> um, so, results-wise, look, I won't go through it. They, they, I won't go through it and find tooth comb. The long and the short of it was that on the measures of perfectionism and imposter fear, they generally reduced after doing the CBT course and then they followed them up three and six months and generally there were sustained reductions. Okay. Right? So, I mean, there was some variation within that. It's four, four, four participants. So I'm not going to... Yeah. They didn't really find... Changes in depression and anxiety, particularly th- there was small changes in depression
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but not so much in the anxiety but so I wonder whether these students were actually anxious to begin with so
0: yeah yeah
1: so or whether i mean this this is an intervention aimed at perfectionism, and then they yeah, changed so that the might
0: perfection. not be the core element of their anxiety
1: no or. Yeah, or that they they might not be that anxious. Yeah. They just might just be perfectionistic yeah. because they may be not be in a period of time where they're under a lot of stress yeah. or something. So this yeah. is back to this. Stress times vulnerability equals yeah. psychopathology.
0: It'd be interesting to see, to look at them again down the track and see whether, you know, if a stressful period had come up.
1: Yeah, and I think that these were students at the start of their degree or something. Okay. So,
0: But there's hope there. Yeah, so, you know, mm.
1: three, three out of the four no longer met criteria for maladaptive perfectionism by six months. Cool. So that's that's effective, right?
0: Yeah. The thing that springs to mind for me is that it sounds like the majority of the intervention was group and self-directed. In terms of feasibility of doing that on a broader scale, that's quite helpful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, yeah, you know, getting people to do four group sessions and then a couple of individual sessions, mm. you know, y- y- if you built that into a, a training program, yeah. That's doable. That's that's incredibly doable. And if you did it, I think if you did it not like straight away, but like once someone's got into the degree a bit mm. and actually dealing with a workload, and then they might actually be able to see how that's helpful.
0: Yeah, it's feasible both for them and for the people delivering the program. Mm.
1: So, I mean, yeah. I, I, and I, I like anything that's theory driven as well. Yeah. Like it's really, really great. Yeah. So, I mean, they talk about, you know, discrepancy perfectionism, the the achievement motivation is steeped in fear of failure and disappointment and failure to appreciate one's success, and that's associated with depression. And so that CBT targeted this as well, as did the self-critical part of perfectionism. Okay. Yeah, you know, imposter fears were reduced. This tendency to attribute success to external factors and doubt one's own skill. And that that kind of imposter scenario can impede your success because you're attributing to other things. And this reduction in depression, but not anxiety, has been repeated in other studies. Okay. So that was about all I had to say on that one. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, should we take a break, get a cup of tea, then come back to it?
1: We're going to come back and we're going to talk about what to wear.
0: See <laughs> <It's easy>. you <laughs> So this is a
1: bit where we tell you that you um, subscribe to the show if you're enjoying it on uh, iTunes or however it is that you to things online
0: and tell us lots of lovely things publicly and send us abuse privately.
1: I think she's saying rate, rate us. Yeah, that, yep, would be that too. <laughs> and, and send us an email um, twostringspod at gmail.com
0: Or send us interesting articles that you've found as well that are sort of weird wider and, wider and, and wonderful.
1: Oh, absolutely. If you guys can do our research for us, that would be great. i appreciated.
0: Brilliant. And we'll thank you on air and so you'll be feel like stars.
1: And also, a shout out to uh, the people listening overseas, obviously an Australian-based podcast, but we are noticing that there are um, a handful of listeners overseas, so um, hello and welcome.
0: Particularly those in the Scandinavian countries.
1: (laughs) Also in Japan, big in Japan, I like the idea of being big in Japan.
0: And we're back. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about interesting things we've stumbled across This week. Both of us got completely fixated on doctor's attire. So that's the topic for this segment.
1: I I, I want to back up and just say what happened was we were like looking in like Psychinfo and PubMed and you look up medical students.
0: And Hunter likes to look up things about clothes and shoes. (laughs) And he got distracted and then we ended up here.
1: No, no, no. What actually happened was I was looking up that and then I was looking at academic psychiatry for another article and which was i think my cbt article Mm -hmm. and then i came across what not to wear an analysis of outpatient resident attire by jody long that was published in 2017 so i'll go into that in just a sec and then so i was like oh i'll type in attire into the thing and then amy calls me (laughs) and then we have this like long discussion where we're both googling or like both looking at attire things and then we had to make the Editing decision not to do the whole podcast on studies about Dr. Satire
0: and bad jokes about, you know, bare below the elbow and things like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So, uh, so here we are. <laughs> so, so here we are. If if you don't work in a hospital, you may not find this entertaining at all, but we did this. This is a study about what psychiatrists work.
0: Okay. And it's um, tweed.
1: Tweed. Well, let, let let me describe the study, and then we can divert into what our opinions about what therapists wear because they're fairly it's we're an interesting breed mm. let's just face it yeah so in america they they wear white coats like doctors wear white coats okay Right. and so this study looks at psychiatrists wearing white coats or mm-hmm.
0: not okay that's
1: and a, you that's, that? That, that's it that's the study.
0: I'm assuming they're wearing something underneath their white coats. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, you had to go there. So, um, so start off with No study has been uh, conducted to explore patients' preference for psychiatric residents' attire at a university outpatient clinic. So, you know, so they, so they they provide some context. You know, Therapeutic Alliance, which you know, which is Pod Pod Two, It's um, important in establishing trust, empathetic relationships with patients. And apparently this phys- physician's attire has been shown to influence doctor-patient relationship, first impressions, as we all know, complex dynamic, you know, neatness, facial expression, body language, smile, piercings. These are all going to influence whether your mother-in-law likes you or, <laughs> or whatever, right? So, um, <laughs> but in the professional realm, same thing, right? Yep. So, the background is that 1980s, there was a shift from shift to casual attire. <laughs> so it's like, um, even like the... Clergy members went to more casual stuff. Very well researched article, and then formal ties apparently associated with competence. Even if the downsides are less familiarity, understanding. So, do patients want psychiatrists to wear a white coat? So it's the dilemma of, on one hand, feeling comfortable in a non-sterile environment, atmosphere, versus portraying an image of expertise and professionalism. Your thoughts, mm. Amy?
0: Uh, I do not wear a white coat. <laughs> I think I think it is worth considering what comes flooding back to mind all of a sudden that didn't come back to mind the other night was all of those studies about experimenters and white coats and how much people will follow directions oh, of Milgram. someone in a white yeah, coat. yeah, right. Yeah. God. Yeah, that we assume that someone is wearing a white coat because they are knowledgeable. So
1: I wonder whether you can get your patients to do more homework.
0: If you wore a white coat. If
1: you wore a white coat. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, one of the main modalities of CBT is a homework yeah. sheet, that kind of stuff. Mm. And you always feel, a therapist, very successful if you get your patients to fill out homework sheets. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Mm. So, uh, in Australia, we don't we don't wear white coats at all. like Unless you're a butcher. A butcher. Or like chemistry. A lab technician. Yeah, chemistry lab technician, maybe. geneticist or something. Yeah. If I said to you, female therapist outfit, Go,
0: <laughs> floaty cardigan. Yep, really kind of like unusual chunky jewelry, mm-hmm. and possibly something sort of patterned.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yes, my my gestalt of a therapist is conservative dressed. Yep. One piece of outfit that is loud, eccentric. Yeah.
0: Yep. So exactly, where? that's oh. where the the jewelry comes in, and and then for men, it's definitely tan pants and a, and a striped shirt, Guil- like, Guil- every time.
1: Guilty as charged.
0: <laughs> and I don't know what it I is. I plead no
1: contest, Your Honour.
0: <laughs> because the interesting thing was, as we started the Masters, as people started going into clinical work, their outfits slowly mo- morphed into this uniform that no one had ever informed us that we yeah. needed to wear.
1: But my first job was in the methadone clinic. So, like, dress codes. Like, so, I, so I rocked up. I think I wore a suit the first day. That was a Mm. mistake.
0: Yeah, no, you don't do that. Yeah, I didn't do that again. And, I mean, that speaks to that sort of the influence of the environment on what you wear as well. Like, I know some people who are working in prisons and they have an outfit and a way of dressing that they'll wear to their clinical work. Mm. And these are all women and what they wear to prison is entirely different. So, they'll wear very minimal or no makeup. They'll have their hair tied up in a bun. They'll make sure that they're quite conservatively dressed yeah. in a prison no jewellery yeah. whereas in their clinical practice they might have their hair out they'll still have the floaty cardigan and the <laughs> statement jewellery um, I'm a big yeah. fan of the
1: man's scarf I really like Oh
0: yeah I like a man's scarf too. That's it. Just in life not just for psychologists. I mean,
1: yeah but I think the, being a psychologist allows me to indulge Yeah. I don't wear a tie at work I think mm-hmm. part of that comes from initially kind of the safety element yeah. like in the methadone clinic. Yeah. <laughs> also it was a bit out of place there. You it would,
0: feels a bit too Formal.
1: I think I wore a pink tie for Breast Cancer Day. Yeah. At work one day, and I thought I'll give this a go. And I asked some of my patients about it, and I
0: said
1: like, no. Nah. Like it was interesting that they had an opinion. Yeah. So that yeah. was like. So I just wear shit, open collar,
0: like And for women, I think there's also a consideration of kind of what's the way to put it, modesty.
1: Modesty, yeah.
0: Yeah, being a little bit careful of that because you end oh. up leaning over and things like that, and so you've kind of got to be a little bit cautious. Yeah, it's interesting to kind yeah. of think
1: about, like, well, what does constitute appropriate attire like i need to look professional yeah but also i need to look approachable approachable becoming and stuff like that mm-hmm. and it's just a sense in, in the hospital system you're interacting you're not sort of just in your own private practice you have to portray professionalism to other
2: professionals yeah right
0: and there's also the practicality element as well you can't be wearing high heels when you're running around the place playing soccer with kids or things like that. Like you kind of have to. Hmm.
1: Anyway, so yeah. anyway, so look, <laughs> the research. I think it's interesting because there's obviously a variety of opinion about white coat versus non. Yeah. And it makes me wonder whether the newer generation of psychiatrists coming through have gone. We have to do a study on this. Yeah. To tell the old fogeys, this is the evidence that, that the patients. Want it this way, not the other way. Yeah. Right. Because try and shake things up a bit. Try and shake things up a bit. So, so they got all patients for a six-month period. They gave them a questionnaire. And, and in the questionnaire, there was photos of a man wearing coat, not wearing coat, and a woman wearing coat, not wearing coat. Mm-hmm. One was African-American. One was white. It was in Tennessee. So, there was a there's a high African-American population there. 50% response rate. Long story short, patients preferred not with a white coat, so it was interesting that they looked at preference, confidence, comfort, support, times of crisis, first appointment, and if you'd been seeing someone for longer than six months and so the lowest score was times of crisis fifty four percent didn 't prefer a white coat, and so that, and they actually talked about it so well, actually maybe in a time of crisis, you are looking for a, authority looking for authority, and so that 's why it was probably a bit more acceptable. Mm-hmm. The only critique I would have of this study was that they—it's sort of hypothetical. Yeah. And actually, what would be interesting is if you actually looked at—you randomized it and then did a measure of therapeutic alliance. Very impressive. They listed 13 possible limitations of the study. I was like, wow, that's thorough. That's thorough. So yeah, I mean, it's not really applicable to the Australian context because we don't wear white stuff, but. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about it. It's like your therapist, if you go see a psychologist, thinks about what they wear. Yeah. Um, or, or, and if they don't, they should. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what did you find?
0: Uh, I found a couple of articles, both set in different cultures. Uh, so perhaps the first one I'll start with, given what you just spoke about, uh, is called Doctor's Attire Influence Perceived Empathy in the Patient-Doctor Relationship by Chung and colleagues, uh, and it was conducted in Korea, published in the Patient Education and Counseling Journal in 2012. So this study looked at patient experiences with a particular doctor rather than hypothetically about what they would think. So they randomly allocated 143 patients to treatment by doctors who were either wearing casual clothes, a suit, traditional outfit, which I couldn't find anywhere what a traditional Korean medical outfit looks like, we'll just have to fill the gaps, uh, or a white coat. Mm-hmm. And all of them were provided with the same treatment. So they, the doctors had a set uh, list of questions that they would ask, and so they tried to make it as sort of standardised as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the patients found the doctor in the white coat to be the most trustworthy and competent, followed by traditionally dressed and those in a suit and in casual outfits, and they preferred a white coat the most. Uh, The traditional dress was highest in making, scored highest in making the patient feel comfortable and content with the consultation, and then they found that empathy was rated significantly higher in uh, doctors wearing traditional or white coats Mm. over those in casual clothes or suits. So, I found that interesting in terms of that... Here, doctors wear suits or kind of more casual, yeah, smart casual clothes. Don't tend to wear either traditional dress or white coats. No. So yeah, so there's a little, little taste of Korea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you would wonder, like in acupuncture, empathy. What's the most important thing? Is it is empathy the most important thing? Is trust the most important thing? Is like, uh, whatever the other markers were. Like, yeah. You know, you could write highly on one or the other, but does that, you know, how important that is? I don't know. So, where is yeah. psychiatry or psychology? Empathy is... Empathy would be is higher. Key, ...is key, is, is the most important thing.
0: I feel like if I was having acupuncture, I'd want to feel like the person was competent and trustworthy.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I'd really want comfortable. I mean, you're getting stabbed with pins. Anyway... Hmm. Next one?
0: Yeah. And then the next one was from Hawaii, mm-hmm. and it's entitled Slippers and a White Coat, Hawaii uh, Physician Attire Study by Ravi Reddy uh, in the Hawaii Medical Journal in 2009. And this, I love
1: that Hawaii has a medical journal.
0: I know, and it's freely available online, so have a look. <laughs> and so they su- surveyed 50 patients and put together a sort of summary of what patients approved of Disapproved of and were kind of neutral about. So the patients approved of their doctors wearing scrubs or wearing jeans. Mm-hmm. They disapproved of them wearing slippers <laughs> or shorts, although that wasn't as high as what I thought. So both of those were 69% of the patients. So, 31% are fine with slippers, was my takeaway message.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which is sizable, man.
0: It is. It really is. Although,
1: does that correlate with poor eyesight? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe.
0: But so, they found that um, the doctor's attire was unrelated to the patient's trust and confidence in them, except for patients who preferred a white coat. So, for them, the white coat conferred a high degree of trust and confidence. Mm. So There's something about that kind of... For those patients, it was important. Mm. Everyone else. And
1: yeah. you wonder whether that's a cohort thing as well. Yeah. Like yeah. older.
0: Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Slippers in Hawaii. <laughs>
1: Slippers in Hawaii. Oh, that's great. Well, we might leave it there. Yep. And uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time.
0: See you later.